Thank you, Erlaine. Am I on? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Erlaine. Uh, beautiful song. Love the message. And it reminded me of the experience that we've had in the 10 days of prayer, which just finished up last night, uh, where each evening we're gathering, those of you who weren't able to be a part of it, each evening we gathered for an hour of conversational prayer. And it was just amazing um, to see the change in my life. Like, I, th- those of you who have been around me and heard me talk about this, you hear, it, hear me say it quite often that, like, I avoid prayer. Like, it's a humbling experience, and I'm proud. And uh, there are times where I'm like, man, it's prayer time, and I think of all the other things that I want to be doing. Um, but, uh, but when I go and I'm a part of that, it just, the song says it very well. There's, there's peace in the presence of God, and I've experienced that this week. I've experienced uh, a desire to pray more. I've experienced um, a slowness to react negatively to things, and I can't explain that other than just being in God's presence, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience, and today as we worship together as a church family, my prayer is that you experience the rejuvenating, life-giving presence of God. He is here. He is here. Um, We can be avoidant to that fact, but he is here, and he wants to fill you. When Tara Westover, that's uh, this individual here, when she was a teenager, there seemed to be little hope that she would ever go to college to say nothing of graduating from college. She grew up in a remote area, remote plot of land in Idaho, and was raised by parents who did not believe in public education. The education that she received at home was limited, to say the least, her homeschooling experience. She was taught by her mother, who was herself a self-taught herbalist and midwife, and her father ran a junkyard. Although she was taught to read and write at home, she knew little to nothing about the common subjects in academia like uh, math or the sciences or history. And since her dad disapproved of her going to college, it was up to her to come up with the money to be able to go to school. And the only way that she was going to be able to do that was to to get an academic scholarship. She had to do really well on her ACT score. So to do that, to do well on her ACT score, she actually had to teach herself algebra. There was a lot going against her. She had never been to school before. She had never taken a standardized test before. She'd never written an essay. She didn't even know how to write an essay. She had all this against her. Just to get into college, she had to overcome huge obstacles. And there's no way this ever would have happened had it not been for people in her life who were speaking hope. Because of these individuals, she was able to get the ACT score that she needed in order to receive the academic scholarship. She was able to get into college and one day, while graduation was, with graduation starting to look like a possibility for her, graduating from college, her academic supervisor encouraged her to consider something that she never would have thought possible. One day, he, he started to talk to her about something called the Gates Scholarship. You may be familiar with the, with the Rhodes Scholarship. The Gates Scholarship is a similar scholarship where it is given to individuals that show incredible academic ability. And, um, 
and it, it basically pays for someone's education to get a PhD at the University of Cambridge in England. You may have heard of it. Um, pretty prestigious university. And her, her supervisor begins to talk to her about this, and he says, you know what, Tara? I think that you qualify for this Gates scholarship, a full ride to get your PhD at the University of Cambridge. Clearly, this man saw something that she did not see in herself. She never thought that she would be a person that would even qualify for a scholarship to go to college, much less the University of Cambridge, get a PhD. But he was on her side. He helped her to see, he spoke hope into her life. And that's what she needed because on her own, from her perspective, she did not see this as even possible. Her parents had trained her to believe that she was not meant to get a formal education. She didn't even look like a college student. Her wardrobe consisted of loose-fitting jeans, oversized t-shirts, and steel-toed work boots. She didn't look like the typical college student, much less a student, a PhD student at a prestigious university. On her own, she never would have hoped to get a PhD from Cambridge on her own. But this academic supervisor that was in her corner, he had influence, and he wrote such a compelling recommendation letter that she was awarded the scholarship. She had someone speaking hope into her life. And a few years later, she graduated from this university with a PhD in history. Now, when circumstances in our life seem impossible, it's easy to feel hopeless, right? It's easy to feel hopeless when things just seem like this is just, I don't see any way through this. I don't even see this as even being a remote possibility. It's easy to feel hopeless in those circumstances. Well, of course, some might think Christians should be exempt from hopelessness, right? I mean, we, we believe in the second coming as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, the blessed hope. We have an amazing Savior who's able to save us to the uttermost. But if you see sin ruling in your life, if there are things in your life that you know are not right that you can't seem to overcome, sin that continues to trip you up, sin that continues to mess up your experience between God and, and, and with others, then these ideas of following Jesus and, and experiencing God's law may seem impossible to you. I mean, have you read the Ten Commandments lately? When Jesus says, follow me, like, let's think about what he's really asking us to do. This is a high standard, and we might get it intellectually, but when it comes to living that, when it comes to experiencing that, that can seem impossible. And hopelessness can come up. We can look at ourselves and find reasons to feel hopeless, for sure. You look in the mirror and evaluate your own spiritual experience. Things might look hopeless. But it's in this place of hopelessness that God reveals his great power. It's in that place of hopelessness that he really shows up. For the next few weeks, we're doing a sermon series called Ready for Rain. You heard it in that, in that last song that our praise team did. Thank you, uh, praise team. How the Lord Jesus, he is the rain. Ready for rain. We're going to be talking about the work of God's Spirit in our life, and what we need to be spirit-filled 
people. And just as rain comes down to the parched ground and softens it and and germinates the seeds that are there and brings life out of this seemingly dead place in the same way the Spirit of God brings life to our hard hearts. He's able to, to bring life out of us. Today, as you consider the ways, or as you might consider the ways that you have failed when it comes to loving like Jesus, or forgiving like Jesus, or serving like Jesus, following Jesus, the ways that you've failed, the idea of being a true follower of Jesus may seem to be out of the question for you, may seem to be an impossibility. But today we're going to look at a at a, a prophecy, a, a story, really, from the, from the Old Testament that shows us how anyone can experience a vibrant spiritual life, regardless of how impossible that may seem. I'd like to invite you to, to um, pray with me. Before we do, the, so the, the, the title of the message here today is Hope in the Impossible. And before we get into the Bible, uh, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you're the God of the impossible. I want to thank you that you give us life. I pray, God, that we'd be open to your presence, that we'd be receptive to the voice of hope that you're speaking to us through your word, that we would receive words of life today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 37 is where we're going to be. We're going to start off with verses 1 through 3 there. And uh, while you're going there, I just want to observe that in the time of Ezekiel, it appeared that the door of Israel's hope had slammed shut. I mean, God had done so much for them. Coming up to this point, he'd, he'd brought them out of slavery in, in Egypt. He had rained down bread from heaven, water from the rock out in the desert. He'd provided for them in so many incredible ways. He'd done so much for them. He protected them, guided them, led them into the promised land, drove out their enemies, provided them with places to live and, and vineyards already planted and orchards already in place, fields full of grain and wheat that they could go in and harvest. He'd done all of this for them. God was with them. And as long as God is with us, anything good is possible. Do you believe that, by the way? Yeah, it's true. But the problem was with Israel is that they turned from God. God wasn't enough for them. He turned to other, they turned to idols. And without God, there was no hope. They had no hope in defending themselves against powerful enemies like the nation of Babylon. In 605 BC, Jerusalem, capital city for Israel, Jerusalem fell to Babylon The Babylonian armies took golden articles out of the sanctuary. They plundered the sanctuary, the house of God. It was this this really terrible, hopeless scenario. And that that nation, the Babylonian nation, took took some of the brightest people captive from Israel. And one one of those captives was Daniel and his three friends that you may be familiar with from the the Bible. A few years later, in in 597 B.C., Uh, The people of Israel and Jerusalem, they rebelled against their Babylonian rulers, and the armies of Babylon came again. They attacked the city uh, again, and this time they took 10,000 captives off from, from Jerusalem. They took them to Babylon, and in that group was the prophet Ezekiel. He was taken to Babylon. After being overthrown twice, the city of Jerusalem had all the appearances of a war zone. The the walls were broken down, structures were damaged, and 
I'm pretty sure that as Ezekiel was march, being marched against his will away from his city that he loved to the land of Babylon, he would have seen bodies of his countrymen scattered around outside of the city walls and along the roadside of, of captives that just couldn't make it anymore. And they, and, and they died along the roadside on the, on the way to Babylon. These images of death and destruction that he saw were the consequences of their choices. They had rejected God. They had made that choice. It was their bad. Yet God's word still gave them, still gives them reason for hope. Listen to what it says here in Ezekiel chapter 37, and I'll read the first three verses. The hand of the Lord was upon me, said Ezekiel, and he brought me out by, his, by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. He's in vision here, and this is what he's seeing. A valley, it was full of bones. Verse 2, he led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Here Ezekiel sees a picture of hopelessness. This, this is a hopeless situation. Bones exposed to the elements like this indicate a lack of a proper burial. A forensic scientist may look at this and conclude that there was nobody to, to no one around the, uh, this, this people was, was so dramatically destroyed that there was no one left to come back and bury their loved ones, bury their friends, give them a proper burial. It was a slaughter. It was, it was a terrible situation of slaughter. The possibility of these bones returning to life should not be an option. Verse 2 emphasizes the hopelessness of this situation by describing these bones as very dry. I mean, as if dry bones is not enough. It says the bones were very dry. But despite the appearance of hopelessness in verse 3, God asks this, this preposterous question. God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? Had Ezekiel been there all by himself, I'm sure he wouldn't even have thought about that. That, wouldn't even, that possibility wouldn't have even entered his mind. Had it been a mere mortal asking Ezekiel this question, he would have said, absolutely not, dry bones, do not return to life, I'm sure he would have said. But since God is asking the question, Ezekiel begins to consider the impossible. Despite the appearances, when God asks can these bones live? I'm sure Ezekiel, if not in his head, at least in his heart, he's thinking, I just do not see it. Nonetheless, he responds, Sovereign Lord, the Lord who is over all, you, you alone know. You alone can answer that question. It's just amazing how little God needs from us in order to do the impossible. How little he actually needs. To accomplish the impossible in us, some might think that we need to be spiritual giants to do great things for God, for God to do great things in us. Perhaps after years of Bible study, perhaps after behaving like a Christian when no one else is looking, perhaps after spending nights in prayer, then, maybe then, we might see the power of God. But look at Ezekiel. At this moment, 
he's not exactly flinging the door of his heart wide open to the possibility of hope. When God asks, can these bones live, we don't find Ezekiel saying, absolutely, God, anything is possible with you. You are the sovereign Lord over life and death. I absolutely believe they can live. We don't, we don't hear him saying that. You can create life out of nothing. We don't, we don't hear these, these po- faith-positive declarations. Ezekiel is simply open to the possibility. Lord, you alone know. You alone can answer that question. All Ezekiel has is that he is willing to hope. He's willing to hope. And that's all you and I need. You don't have to do anything great. You don't have to even know the Bible. I mean, it it helps to do, you know, this is how we connect with God. It helps to pray and all of that stuff. All of those things are important. But all we need to experience the miracle working power of God, to experience the impossible that God is able to do, is simply a willingness to hope in that. Are you willing? Then you can. doesn't matter what your past looks like. doesn't matter what you've done. If you are simply willing, that's all God needs. It just, the door of hope just needs to be cracked open just a little bit. That's all we see in Ezekiel's life. He's open to the possibility, and this is enough for Ezekiel to see the power of God. In verse 4, God tells him to prophesy to these bones. Prophesy to the bones. Tell them to hear the word of the Lord. And in verse 5, he says to these bones, you, he's speaking the words of God here, you will come to life. Notice that God does not tell Ezekiel to merely speak. Now, this might seem like a little technicality, but there's significance here. He doesn't say speak to the bones. Here's why. No amount of eloquence, no amount of persuasive speech can bring life to dry bones. Like, if it's just me up here speaking, you might as well leave. <laughs> if we're not looking at the Bible, I mean, there's, there's no power to bring life in mere human speech. But for the dead to come to life, it's only possible if Ezekiel prophesies. God tells him to prophesy. Here's the difference between prophesying and merely speaking. To prophesy is to speak the word of God. It's to pass on the message of God. Ezekiel was using his mouth, but the message and the authority behind the message was from God. That is what prophecy is. It's the message of God. It's the word of God. And when Ezekiel began to prophesy, verse 7 tells us that he began to hear a noise. It was a rattling sound. These bones started to rattle, and they started to come together. The sinews began to form on these bones. There began to, flesh began to appear. Skin began to, to come over these bones, and breath entered the life of these now-formed bodies. No longer was it a valley full of very dry bones. Now there was a vast, vibrant army ready for battle. The picture of hopefulness is now before Ezekiel. And what brought this change about? He prophesied. He spoke the word of God. It wasn't his words. The word of God brought life. It brought hope to a hopeless situation. In Ezekiel chapter 37 here, remaining in this chapter, um, 
Looking at verses 11 and 12, God explains the meaning of this vision. Like, what is all of this about? Why is God sharing this vision with Ezekiel? Look at, listen to what, look at what he says here in verse 11. Then God said to me, Ezekiel says, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel, the people of God. This applies to us, all who are believers in God, the people of Israel. The people of Israel at this time, they're in, they're in captivity. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. The bones represent the spiritual condition of God's people. Physically, they're alive. They're breathing. They're, they're living. They're walking around. They're alive. But they have rejected God spiritually. They are very dry bones. They are dead. When it comes to following God, when it comes to living out his character of love, when it comes to doing that which Jesus would do, they are dead. But God's word promises to do the impossible. And when God's word is spoken, there will be a resurrection. This prophecy is not just about Israel coming out of Babylon and being restored to their land, living again in the promised land. It's a prophecy about spiritual revival for God's people. About a year ago, uh, the American Bible Society, they teamed up with Harvard University's um, Human Flourishing Program to do a study And the study that they wanted to look into is how the reading of the Bible affects people's sense of hope. What's the correlation there, if any? And so to find this out, they conducted two different surveys, and they rated people on their responses on on a scale of 1 to 100, 100 being fully hopeful, 1 being no hope. To improve the accuracy of this study, they, they did these two surveys about six months apart. They involved over a thousand different participants, and what they discovered was that people who read the Bible have more hope. But I think it's really interesting to see how it relates to the frequency of reading the Bible. This is what the study found, that those individuals who reported that they read the Bible three to four times a year, they had a score of hopefulness or a hope score of 42. Look at what that score goes to when people read the Bible one time a month. It goes from 42 to 55. When people said that they read the Bible once a week, their hopefulness score goes from 55 to 66. And when people said that they read the Bible about daily, most, multiple times a week, their hopefulness score goes up to an average of 75. Really interesting. The hopefulness score of an individual who reads their Bible every day versus one who reads their Bible three to four times a year is 33 points higher. It's an increase of over 30% if we're going to quantify hopefulness in a person's life. Without the Bible, we have no hope of experiencing spiritual life. On our own, we don't even consider it, but there's this voice of hope that speaks to us. It's speaking, and the more we listen to it, the more hopefulness we have. And it's not just a blind hopefulness, it's a hopefulness in what is actually possible from God's perspective. On our own, our spiritual life, you might describe it like that. 
very dry, perhaps. Perhaps you describe it that way. I know I would describe my spiritual life on my own as dry bones. On my own, I am not able to love like Jesus. I'm not able to rightly pray for an enemy as he calls me to. I'm not, rightly, I'm not able to, to rightly forgive someone who I don't think deserves forgiveness. I'm not able to genuinely be present with other people and love other people. I can't do that on my own. When I pray, it's all about me. It's not about God's will. That's what I do on my own. Spiritually speaking, my spiritual experience, and, and if that sounds right to you, perhaps your spiritual experience is dry bones apart from God. But God sees what we cannot see. When we see death, God sees the perfect scenario for a resurrection. Notice when Israel is given spiritual power. It wasn't until, Israel did not see spiritual power until they had hit rock bottom, until they were exiles, taken as captives by Babylon. That's when they saw the power of God. That's when, this, that's when this revelation, that's when this vision was given. It was when they, were, when they were at rock bottom, when they were exiles in Babylon. Why is this? Why does God wait to give this vision to Ezekiel when they're at this lowest point? I would like to submit to you is because we cannot experience the resurrection power of God until we are dead. And the good news is, spiritually speaking, everyone qualifies for the resurrection. The reason we struggle to follow Jesus is because we are not spiritual. We're carnal. We're flesh. And for many like me, this is a fact that I don't like to admit. I'm just going to be really honest with you. I don't like to admit that I am not a spiritual person naturally. I want to keep the commandments. I want to love others the way Jesus loves others. I want to live like him. And when I fail because I'm not a spiritual person— I result to pretending like I'm loving others, pretending like I'm keeping the commandments. And when I fail at pretending, then I go to justifying my reasons. Well, this is why I didn't love that person very well. This is why I failed to follow Jesus. There's there's a good, logical reason. I I try to justify my wrongs. And because I'm a Seventh-day Adventist and I assume that I'm right, there's even more pressure to perform well. Anybody relate to that? But the truth is, I'm spiritually dead no matter how much I want to avoid that fact. And Ezekiel 37 indicates that when you and I recognize that we are spiritually dead, that's actually not a bad thing. Accepting my true condition means that I'm in the place to experience the resurrection power of God. Ezekiel 37, verse 14. God says to us, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. God's spirit gives us hope in the impossible. Is it possible for you and I to be vibrant spiritual people? Is it possible for us to experience victory over sin in our life? Victory over the the rulership of, of Satan in our life? Is it possible? Absolutely. God says, I will put my spirit. It's through the spirit of God. He will put his spirit in us and we will live. That is how we experience spiritual life. It's because of God. 
All that is required of us to experience that is a willingness, this this ever so small cracking the door of hope open in our hearts by being willing to hope in God's word. We can experience the impossible. We, We can experience loving others, forgiving others, serving others. People who are hopelessly selfish can experience a spiritual life. Why? Because God can bring dry bones to life. Bible scholars have observed many correlations between Ezekiel and Jesus. Here are some. They both began their ministry by a river. They both began their ministry around 30 years of age. But here in Ezekiel 37, we see what I would argue is one of the most compelling correlations between Jesus and Ezekiel, and that is the message of the resurrection. Multiple times, Jesus demonstrated that he had power over the grave, the widow of Nain's son. Famous example is Lazarus. Jairus' daughter who died, multiple times he demonstrated that he had power to resurrect the dead. And if Jesus can resurrect a dead person, then there is hope for all of us. As you consider the spiritual deadness in your life, let the voice of God inspire you with hope. He says to you today, I will put my spirit in you and you will Live. You will live spiritually. You will be vibrant spiritually. You will be able to live the life of Christ. Turn your attention to God's word. Read it. Think about it. Let it occupy your mind. Talk about it. Because this is the power. It's the word of God that has power to change us and to bring us to life. In the deadness of our life, God's word gives us good reason to hope in the impossible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for opening our minds. As I look at my life, I don't see how it's possible to be saved. I don't see how it's possible to have victory over sin, to be able to live the life of Christ, to be able to be a vibrant spiritual person. But your word tells us that you make it possible because you speak. And I pray, God, for myself, I pray for each of my family, my church family here, each, each one, each person that is gathered today. I pray, God, that we would have the willingness to hope in your word and experience your life-giving power. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.